every year in the high school, I give out, at least the last couple of years, I ask for suggested, suggested topics. And sometimes it's an appropriate one that I can translate over uh, to a church service. And this year was very, very appropriate, or so I, so I deemed. So I took something that um, high schoolers had requested and did a sermon. But it is not exegetical. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit, which is a little outside of my norm, much to my moody prof's sadness, I'm sure. So we will be all over the place taking a look at a topic, I think, that is relevant to us all, perhaps a topic uh, that impacts our lives maybe more than anything else, and that would be the concept of emotions. And so if you have your Bibles and your fingers are loose, I can uh, let you know in advance we will be bouncing around quite a bit through the Scriptures to take a look at what does the Bible say about the concept of emotions. All right, so let's bow in prayer and we'll get started today. Uh, Lord, this topic is way beyond a 40-minute sermon. This is something that is humongous, but yet we know that you can take small amounts of time and work it out over our lives to make big changes. And so I pray that this might be uh, maybe an eye-opening discussion as we think through our hearts, as we think through emotions. I pray that your word would come to bear on the subject, that it would not just be my thoughts or ideas here, but that it would be what your word has said and shown us. May we be able to apply what you would have and forget what is not of you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So I'm taking a look at the concept of emotions, the good, the abused, and the transformed. Uh, most of you know, perhaps, uh, that I grew up in a family full of pets. At one point in my life, probably early junior high, we had three dogs, one cat, two songbirds, one parakeet, two rats, which one of them later went on to have more rats, Uh, a frog named Sticky Fingers, and two ferrets at the same time in a house in the middle of a neighborhood. So it wasn't like we were on a farm or something. So most of you then can understand why I would either become an all-out pet person or the opposite. And if you know me, I'm on the opposite end of that extreme. Uh, My lack of interest in pets goes back a long ways. Pets, for those of you who have them, are very needy animals, right? They they're desperate, desperately needy for everything, right? So I love this picture. <laughs> when you're done, you can fill my bowl. You know, it's the idea that your life centers on them, at least from their understanding of things. So your pet can start barking at 4 a.m. And maybe there's a reason for it. And maybe there isn't a reason for it. But you will probably get up to either let it out, feed it, put it in a room somewhere and shut the door. But your life revolves around it. Uh, When you go on trips, you have to plan for pet sitting. You can't be gone throughout the day too terribly long because you don't want an accident when you come home. Uh, My house, not my house. This is not our dog. I can't tell you, though, how many thousands of dollars of damage has been done to my parents' property because of their pets. And I also can't tell you how many pets have been killed or eaten by other pets that we have had. Uh, one famous story, at least to our family, is we went away for Thanksgiving to our to our friends across town. We were gone for a couple hours, and one of our dogs had our parakeet on Thanksgiving. We had a bird. He had a bird. <laughs> Everyone but the parakeet was happy. So they are incredibly destructive. And at the same time, and this might surprise you, there is a benefit to pets, at least in my understanding. I was saved by a dog when I was a toddler, and I'll get back to that story at the end, so will that for the exciting conclusion. I want to make the case, though, that feelings are a lot like pets. If we aren't careful, and if we aren't conscientiously thinking about it, they will run us. 
they will walk all over us. And all of us have been in a position at the park where we've seen a, an owner of a dog being walked by the dog, right? It's just tugging you any direction that you want to, where it wants to go, and you just haplessly follow along after it. And I think if we're not careful, emotions can become that. They can become domineering, insisting that what they feel is the most real thing in the world, and you'd better respond. And you can either just let it run you, or you can go the other way. You could try to ignore your feelings. You can lock them in a room and hope for the best. But if you do that with your feelings, just like with your pet, there will be barking and strange noises, and sooner or later you're going to have to deal with what that locked-up emotion is doing because they don't go away. So emotions, I think, and the, the, the overarching thing I'm going to try to show here is that they are like a pet. They have a benefit. There's also a downside, and we don't want to be run by them. So the upside to pets is they are great for many things. A well-trained pet can be an amazing asset to a person. They are the best form of home protection, truly. Right? If you have a dog, your chances of having your house broken into drops dramatically just because of barking. It doesn't even have to be a big dog. It'll keep most people out of a person's house. They are also great for companionship for some people. They uh, get a lot out of that. I am not one of those people. Uh, but famously, dogs can help in weaknesses. And they also have the ability to discern and understand dangers and things that we cannot hear or understand. So they did um, some research on their ability to smell. And in a cancer study with 400 cases, the dog was able to determine 71 out of 100 patients who had cancer. So they're shooting at about 71% for lung cancer. They can smell the patient's breath and determine if they have lung cancer 71% of the time with this certain kind of cancer. They also could distinguish different kinds of diseases outside of cancer. So there is a huge benefit to having animals in our world, you know, not counting the seeing eye dogs and all the other ways that animals can be a benefit to us. Um, but animals, like our emotions, are like a fallen thing. They have the pros, they have the cons, and uh, they, can, they can either make your day or wreck your day. And so in reality, I can think of nothing else in an everyday decision-making world that we live in where our emotions are not the biggest factor, where they don't come into play the most. So the first thing I want to take a look at is Proverbs chapter 4, because what I'm going to try to argue here, start off, is that emotions are a product of the heart. Emotions flow out of the heart. And we often think of the heart and emotions as being the same thing, but the scriptures never do. In the Bible, the heart is the, is the seed of emotion, but it is also the area of which you live out your life every single day. So Proverbs 4, this is a verse I'm sure that most of you are very familiar with, and Solomon is in his opening chapters in the book of Proverbs, is kind of laying out for his son the areas of life that he needs to be very aware of things that are going to trip him up and get him off course. And so in Proverbs 4, here's what he says in verse 23. And it's remarkable how he says it. This man wrote several thousand Proverbs, and he says, above all else, above everything else, of all the things that you could spend your life pursuing, he says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. And so it's not just emotions that flow out of the heart. Everything flows out of the heart. Your will, your choices, your desires, everything. So he says, though, if you guard your heart, by definition, you will be guarding your emotions, which flow out of the heart. So emotions flow out. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew chapter 12. He's talking to actually his enemies, and he says, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. For out of the overflow of the heart, 
a mouth speaks. Can you speak a word without emotions being a part of it? Has there been times where you could actually say you were speaking with no emotional involvement? And I think for most all of us, that never happens. We're either speaking out of boredom, we're speaking out of anger, we're speaking out of love or compassion or whatever. But to have the overflow of the heart demonstrate itself through what we say is to say that the emotions are directly connected to all of that. So emotion shapes our words and out of the overflow of the heart, we live. And so our emotions flow out of this and how we speak and what we do. Now, the question is, how are are emotions formed in us? And I'm no psychologist, so I will not go into that. But I do know this. We have emotions because God has emotions. He made us in his image and they are a gift from God. Emotions are a gift. We reflect his image when our emotions come into play. And so we see in the Old Testament tons of examples of God demonstrating emotion. He is angry at his people when they sin. He shows compassion to those who are suffering. He has a strong sense of surprise and excitement when his people do what's right. The emotional heart of God comes out throughout the Old Testament all over the place. There is a key difference, though. Unlike us, his emotions never cloud his judgment, and it never changes how he operates. It does not alter his character in the least. And so for us, we've all been around people who have gone from loving and respecting a person, and then one breakup later, or one revealed sin later, that same person who once had love and respect now has nothing but anger and hatred. One event later changes it all because they don't know everything. And when this character trait develops or this relationship comes to an end, suddenly our emotions, which once were very positive towards that person, can now turn in 180 degrees and now be negative towards that person. And then once the emotion towards that person is negative, we act out of that emotion. So I I work in high school realm quite often and breakups come, breakups go, and one day, literally, this is the greatest person I've ever met. One breakup later, one fight later, I hate them. How could I ever love them? They are the worst person on the face of the planet. And that's saying something, right? There's seven billion people on this planet, and the worst one is in that building over there, right? And then they start treating that person out of that emotion. Unless we think it's just junior high and high school kids, we do the same thing, right? But what is true for us thank God, is not true of him. His emotions do not alter. He hates sin as much as he always has. He has compassion and love for you as much as he always has. And he does not have mood swings between them. And that is what separates him from us. But the fact we have emotions is because he does. In Malachi chapter 3, the camp I did this past summer in July, that was their theme verse. To be honest, I'd never read Malachi chapter 3, but it is a great verse. Uh, In that passage, the Lord is speaking. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. I want to read that again. Malachi chapter three, verse six. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Because God does not change in his emotions, we live. If it was any different, if his emotions determine what he did towards us, we would be done in an instant. But because his character is such of a solid foundation, that his emotions do not alter how he sees us or how he interacts with us, then that's great. So he draws close to us. He draws close enough to us that we can slap him. We can interact with God emotionally. We can either demonstrate our love to him because he comes close, or we can grieve the spirit of God 
That is a remarkable thing. Have you ever thought about the fact that we have the opportunity, if you want to put it that way, to grieve the heart of God by our choices? Paul talks about that in more than just one book, that the Holy Spirit in you can be grieved by how we act and how we relate. He draws close enough to us. He allows his emotions to connect with us in such a way that we have the opportunity to hurt him. That's crazy. He doesn't have to do that, but he chooses to do that. And we see that in no clearer picture than in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes very close to us, becomes very vulnerable. And I want to do something a little different this morning, um, if you're willing and able. I want to hear just some shout outs of examples of emotions you see of Jesus in the New Testament and like a, a small context to it. So if you wanted to talk about an anger, don't just say Jesus got angry. Give me a, a context of where and why he got angry. Uh, and just if you want a minute to think, I'll try not to rush it too much, but I want you just to be able to think through. I'm saying Jesus is an emotional person. He is not just coasting through life, watching all the crazy humans dance around based on their emotions. He experiences emotions very deeply, and I want us to be able to think of some. I obviously have some if we can come up with nothing, but in a group like this, I'm confident. So go ahead. Give me some examples of emotions that Jesus experiences. Oh, that's great. Thank you. I was afraid there'd be nothing. All right, I heard one over here. Talking to his best friends. Yeah, frustration. I heard one over here somewhere. Anger in the temple. Yeah, we'll, we'll cover that one for sure. Anger in the temple at the abuse of his father's house. I heard another one over here somewhere. Okay, go ahead. The Anguish at the cross. Emotional separation. Anguish at the cross. Jesus wept. And you remember which context that one is specifically? Yeah, the death of Lazarus and specifically the sisters and their emotion tied to death. Yeah. Like almost, maybe even, I would say maybe even more than disappointment. Almost like a heartbreak. Like you couldn't, you couldn't stay awake and pray with me for an hour? Yeah, for sure disappointment and heartbreak. Any others we want to throw out there? I think there's, yeah, compassion. He has compassion on these people, compassion on those who have leprosy. It says in Matthew, I'm pretty sure, multiple times he had compassion and touched them because he saw them, yeah. Joy, uh, can you think of the a context there, Mike? Yeah, right before the darkest day of his life, he's talking about the joy of being complete in the Father. Any other examples you guys want to throw out there? We covered a lot. So one of the things we see in the person of Christ is not a cold, calculating Savior, but a very deep, emotional Savior who comes way down and experiences, and I would say of the emotions we mentioned, most of them we would consider negative. Not all, but most of the ones that were just thrown out, we would be like, I don't know if I really want to feel those emotions if I had a choice. But the truth of the matter is, he felt those, which gives us freedom to feel those same ones. And so I want to ask a tough question here. So here's a picture of the scene where he's clearing the temple. Jesus is angry. In fact, maybe you might say enraged. He's flipping tables. He's driving animals out. He doesn't seemingly hit any human, but they are scared to death of him because of his anger in this scene. And yet, not very long after this, he is mocked, tortured, flogged, and humiliated. And do we see anger in him? And here's the question that's going to have to start thinking through our minds. What is the separating point? 
how could he be so enraged at the temple, right? Cheating a few people and not be enraged at being flogged and tortured and humiliated as the son of God. And the question starts to be asked, it boils down to the question of whose kingdom am I living for? Whose kingdom am I living for? And we're going to come back to that. That's going to be hopefully a theme as we evaluate because we see Jesus interact emotionally very deeply and yet he does it right every time. How did he do that? Did he just call on the God card and pull out the God card anytime things got hard? And I think Luke would make the case that no, he does not pull out the God card. He lives life as a human, 100% dependent on the will of God, which then gives us some direction, some help. Because if it was just the fact that he was God that enabled him to do all of this, that separates him from all of us in this room. None of us can operate that way. I don't have the God card to be when I get angry at my kid to be like, oh, instant peace and joy. And now I can punish and discipline perfectly. Put the God card back in the pocket. I can't do that. Neither can you. And I think the, the scriptures are pretty clear. Neither did he, which is good as we think through who he is. So emotion, he has them. He never operates with them sinfully, but I think all emotion potentially are meant to be good. So think about even hatred, an emotion that we most often abuse, but are there things that we are supposed to hate? Absolutely. There's a ton of things we're supposed to hate. Injustice, sin in my own heart, cowardice. We are to hate those things. The effects of death on the world, we're supposed to hate that. It's not supposed to be something we're comfortable with. What about anger, the one that gets abused probably more than any other emotion? Is there a place for anger? And the answer is absolutely. Anger is what drives us to make changes when injustice happens. And it's what drove Jesus to make changes when he needed to. So even the negative emotions are meant to be good. Now, they get tricky because emotion can cloud our vision. But when we see somebody hurting, someone we love, anger is the appropriate response. It is what led me this past winter to climb up a Chuck E. Cheese play area because there was a couple little girls that decided that no boys were allowed to come play in the play area. I was like, oh no, this is a public play area. So, you know, Luke and Sam and Caden are sitting at the bottom of this thing and they can't go up. And I'm like, I'm going up. So I went up and I had a little conversation with those little girls, scared them half to death, I'm sure. But the boys were able to move on up, right? and play. Now, whether that's a right motion or not, I don't know. However, anger is meant to drive us to do the right thing, to do what needs to be done. And anger often is the emotional strength to propel us into situations that if we were only thinking rationally, we would probably choose not to go. So is emotions a bad thing? And the answer is not at all. It's the problem of what we do with the emotions. Emotions are not the problem. The problem is sometimes emotions always come faster than reason. And if we react in emotion and do not allow reason to catch up, that's when a lot of trouble happens. Um, Again, emotions are like our pets. They're howling at a corner. They can't tell you what they're howling at, right? If you knew what they were howling at, you might just tell them to be quiet and send them in the room. But if you have no idea they at least are drawing your attention, your attention to something you did not know was present before because they can hear things and see things. Emotions are much the same way. They react, and we may not even know why we're feeling that way, but we wouldn't even know there was a problem if that emotion didn't well up suddenly within us. So, you know, as little kids, they're like walking bags of emotion devoid of all reason, at least when they're little, 
and you can teach a child slowly over time to develop the ability to reason. But that takes experience and that takes cognitive ability. That takes a lot of things. You don't have to teach a kid to be emotional. You're like, no, Billy, you're supposed to cry now. You know, you just didn't get your way. So, of course, you should be weeping, not just looking at me blankly. You don't have to teach a child to do that. They do it instantaneously. But what we can teach and what is the whole point of parenting, I'm discovering. I thought there was so much more to parenting, but I think you could boil it down to this. Teaching a kid how to react to life. How to react to your emotion. You can't take it away from them. But you can teach them how to use it and the way that it's supposed to be used. And in the same way, emotions, though, reveal problems we may not have known was there. Now, it's not just true of little kids. There's a country song that came out a long time ago. This is what this lady is singing about her. I think it's like her ex's new girl or something, of course, because it's a country song. Uh, She may be an angel who spends all winter bringing the homeless blankets and dinner. A regular Nobel Peace Prize winner, but I really hate her. I'll think of a reason later. Inside her head may lay all the answers for curing diseases from baldness to cancer. Salt of the earth and a real good dancer, but I really hate her, and I'll think of a reason later. You ever been in that position? That person walks in the room and suddenly you're angry and you have no idea why? They walk in the room and you suddenly feel judged and you have no idea why? We aren't that different from small children. Most of us just have enough whatever to refrain and put the grid up and not say what instantly comes to our mind. So emotions are going to show up and they're going to reveal things. But we would be foolish if we believe that every single emotion is necessarily good and meant to be acted on. Just like we would be foolish to respond to every bark of the dog and assume a robber is breaking into your house every time the dog barks. Now, there are those of us who struggle with emotion, and every time we feel something, we instantly think it has to be the most real thing in the world. And we'll cover what that, what that is in just a second. Our culture is telling us, if you feel it, emote it. If it feels good, let it go. Catharsis. If you're angry, punch something, scream and shout and yell. The question is, is is it always right to let all emotion come through? Or is there a place to be able to say, "Mm, maybe this emotion, which isn't necessarily good or bad, maybe this emotion needs to be reined in a little bit. And how do we decide how to do that? How do we go about it? And here's where we come to the next major, the issue, right? So we have good emotions. I don't think there's any emotion that in the right way in the right place, in the right time, is not good. Every emotion we would feel has its place, even the negative ones. The question is, what about the fact that we so often get them abused? The over-emotional and the anti-emotion. Because any good gift has the potential to be destructive. And one of the remarkable things I'll have to ask God about is why he gives us so many good things that have such a negative ramification if we abuse it. He does. Right, So if we have the freedom and the responsibility of having a car, that heightens the risk. Right, If you're sitting at home bored, chances are pretty good you're not going to wrap yourself around a tree. But if you have the freedom and the responsibility of a car, now that gift has the potential to be destructive to us. If you've been given a better mind than normal, if you are intelligent, that means the potential to use that gift to hurt more people increases. A mugger on the street may rob you of 150 bucks, but it's the white-collar genius that's going to rob you of your entire savings account and a hundred other people. The good gift of sex that God gives us perhaps is the gift that has most long-term negative ramifications if it's abused, beyond what a person would normally think at the time when they choose to follow their urges and their passions. Every gift has the negative flip 
of being hurtful and abusive. And emotions are just like that. They are a great thing that God has given us. They are a product of the heart. But I just got done saying that above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. You then throw that into Jeremiah. And this is the next major passage to take a look at for further study. The whole passage of Jeremiah 17, which is where I'll read for just a second. That whole passage is well, well worth your time of studying it in more detail. Um, for a flyover like this sermon is, I can't go into tons of detail. But in Jeremiah 17, here is what God says about the heart that we have to keep in mind. Verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. So it has to be guarded above all things, but it is also deceitful above all things. And as I've hopefully laid out, out of the heart flows our emotion. So what does that mean about our emotions? If they're a product of a deceitful heart, our emotions have the potential to deceive us terribly. And since it's out of our own heart, it is the worst form of deception because it is self-deception. And it will drive us in places we never thought possible. But I love the follow-up to this verse. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. Just because our heart deceives us does not mean it's deceived him. And that's our saving grace right there. Because the scriptures will lay out for us, and we'll come to this in just a little bit, will lay out for us what do we do with our deceptive heart. If we can't trust it and it's, it's ours, what hope do we have? And we have this verse that says, I, the Lord, search the heart. And he has the potential to reveal the truth to us. How do we get to that place? So the heart is deceptive. It can trick us. It can make us do things we would never imagine possible. And um, oftentimes we have a tendency to underestimate how influential the heart is in everyday life. Um, John Piper, he, he has a quote that kind of extended. He's asking this question, how many times do you stop and evaluate the pros and the cons of a big decision every day? He says maybe 10 to 20 times we actually stop and evaluate, should I do this? Should I say this? Should I go to her? Should I not go to her? Should I, whatever. He says maybe 10 to 20 times a day. And here's, here's his follow-up. Maybe 10 times during the day, you step back and have a hard decision and you have to think through the pros and the cons. And then there are the 10,000 facial expressions, tones of voice and gestures and things that really make a moral difference in the world that you didn't give any premeditated thought towards. If I could devote energy to become the kind of person whose spontaneous acts were good and loving and emotionally building up and kind, I would, I would not worry too much about the big decisions because in reality, they make up such a small part of my life. Does that not go against how we normally think? But is it not true that our, our emotions as they come out of what we say and the 10,000 facial expressions that can break a person or make a person feel shame or guilt or underloved or underappreciated. That's the thing we don't consciously think about. And yet that's the thing that changes the world. So how do we go about having our hearts transformed in this way? The first thing I think is to recognize our tendencies. Some of us are the type um, to fall. I think it's really only two camps for most of us. There's the over-emotional and then the anti-emotional. But that doesn't mean if you are an emotional person that you're instantaneously the abusing of emotions. Nor is it if you're the more stable, calm kind that you're instantaneously anti-emotional. I don't want to make that case. However, I do think if this is if you're in one of those two groups, when hard emotions come, I think most of us know which way we have a tendency to fall into one of those two camps, either over-emotional or under-emotional. Uh, and our hearts are the ones that are going to do that because our hearts drive us 
towards pleasure and away from pain. I think that's pretty consistent for all of us. The problem is we don't know what's actually going to provide lasting pleasure and what's going to provide lasting pain. We only see the short term how we feel today. And so when we experience difficulty, it instantly pushes us because our hearts move towards pleasure and away from pain. And so if emotion feels good, what's the temptation? To run towards it. Does that mean it's always the right thing to do? No. And if it feels bad, what do we instantly assume? That it's negative and hurtful and we should have nothing to do with this negative feeling. And that's not good either. So the first form is to let our emotions lead us through life. Sorry, I'm behind on my slides there. Let our emotions lead us through life. This picture is a good one. Because is that kid leading that dog? Nope. That's much more the case, right? If our emotions lead us, it ends up dragging us through life unexpectedly. And that's not a good thing. All of us have said things and made choices built on emotion that minutes later, days later, or weeks later, we regretted horribly, right? It was like, whoa, that was not the right place or time. And I regret that. And we see that throughout scripture. One of my examples is the person of Saul. King Saul, early in his life as king, gets enraged at a, at a, at a city that's about to conquer or persecute one of his cities. So this group raises an army and says, you're now our slaves. And if you don't submit, we're going to cut off your thumbs and your toes. Is that a deal? And they're like, uh, give us a week to think about it. And they ask all their friends, can you come fight for us? And they're like, mm, no. And Saul gets angry that no one stands up. So he raises an army, much smaller than the army that's coming, and he opposes them and he's victorious. And we're like, way to go, Saul. Anger leads Saul to do a good thing. A couple years later, he's randomly jealous at David, his son's best friend, and his anger leads him to try to pit him to the wall with a spear. Same guy, same emotion, one sinful, one good. And so if you're the over-emotional kind, that doesn't mean that all over-emotion is always a bad thing. It just means you're more in tune with it. You're more sensitive to it. But it also means it can swing you further directions than you'd ever want to go. Um, and so this is what we see in King Saul because we don't often question the authority of emotion. Just because I feel it doesn't make it real. Um, uh, I almost didn't share this story. About six years ago, uh, Caden was about 10 months old. I went to Phil's wedding and I had a midlife crisis at the age of 30. So if that turns out to be reality... 60 years old, I'm kicking the bucket if my midlife crisis happened at 30. But I was over at Phil's wedding in the Philippines. I flew over there. Uh, jet lag screwed with me both directions. That was pretty terrible. I don't know how much lack of sleep was actually a factor in this whole summer. But I was over there with my, one of my best friends who was single, and I was single, and much of my single life was spent with Phil. And I'm spending time by myself in this foreign city with my friend, watching him get married. And then I come back, and I walk through the door, and then I realize I'm never going to be single again. I'm sitting there staring at my wife with our 10-month-old, and I'm like, I can't just get up and go do whatever I want anymore. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was so discouraged. And Melody was like, oh, freaking out a little bit. And I was freaking out a little bit because my heart is saying, singleness, good. <laughs> and my mind is saying, but you made a covenant to God. And for two months... My heart and my mind were waging war against each other. Now, I knew my heart was wrong. It wasn't like I was deceiving into it. But man, the power of that feeling to screw with my mind. But the beauty was 
I had God's word running through my head and I couldn't escape it. And the, the truth of God's word hit how I felt and said, that may be how you feel. And I couldn't change how I felt. That's not real. And two months later, that summer came to an end. And I look back and I can laugh. But man, it was a powerful point. And it was a, a reminder to me because there's always people in my life who are making decisions. And at times you see people leave their families, leave their kids, do crazy things. And it's very easy to be like, how could you ever do that? At that point in my life, I know how you could do that. You follow your heart and you let God's word sit back here somewhere, just outside your peripheral vision. So you don't look at it too closely because you know if you do, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make your decision much harder. In reality, we don't want hard decisions. And that's where many of us live. And so for me, that was super helpful because now when people have these decisions that I look at and say, how could you even think about doing that? I just have to think back to that day, my midlife crisis at 30. And I know how you do that. You just go with your heart, go with how you feel. So another part of being over-emotional though is that the pursuit of the positive emotion becomes the driving force of life. To feel the emotional high becomes what we want more than anything else. So this could be, living for a victory that we had way back in the past. It could be looking for the next romantic experience that we have. It could be nostalgia, longing for the good old days. And it's living in something that doesn't really exist. Because emotional highs are like those little cups at Frog. Anyone been to the Frog ice cream place in Kingston? Am I the only one? All right, so good. There's like five of us. We'll go there after church. I'll, I'll get you one of these. So you get these little like ketchup cups and they're free. You can taste test each one and decide which one you want. The problem is, if you walk into Frog, you get one little taste cup, you fill it up with ice cream, you eat it, and then you walk out the door, you've kind of missed the point. Most of us have those emotional highs, and it's, it's the equivalent of having a taste of ice cream in a ketchup cup. It's just enough to make you wish you had more. That's the whole point. I'm sure they have not lost money in giving people little teeny segments of ice cream because then you turn around and buy half a pound of it and it turns out to cost you $27 or whatever it turns into. Because in all reality, that's what they're after. They want you to buy that. Yeah, they'll give you the little free taste. But that little free taste is meant to drive you to something bigger. The emotional highs in this life are not the end in themselves. And that is like life shattering if we really come to grips with that. The emotional highs, whether it's the day your kid was born or the day you got married or whatever... That is only meant to remind you that there's something bigger coming for you. Heaven is the end outcome. Life with Christ for eternity is why we are given those emotional highs. But if we fixate on the high, then we become the person that's just looking for the next taste, the next taste, the next taste for the course of our lives. And we miss out on the reality. Heaven is coming. That is why we are given these highs, to remind us that there's more and that this is not it. And this is how a person who forgets this point ends up being that lady who's watching her stories or the football player that only feels joy when he remembers the victory when he was in his high school years or the person who has the longing for the good old days when things were however. None of those are real. Those are all memories and memories are prone to change. All of that's to drive us to something bigger, something grand, grander than any of that. Now, so we have the over-emotional perspective. And then we have our anti-emotions. All of us have experienced times when emotions ran with us and then it led to pain. 
And so it's not surprising to me that many of us, we go through life, we're younger, usually the puppy of our emotion is so cute and we think we can control it. And then that puppy grows up and wreaks havoc on our lives. And then we look back and we say, wow, emotional pain is the worst kind of pain. I never want to feel that again. And so we take our emotions and we lock them up in a crate and we say, if I can't, for, if I can't forget the pain, I can at least keep myself from experiencing more of it. And I will leave the emotions behind and I will try my best not to get too close to anyone who would hurt me. And I understand this perspective. And I think C.S. Lewis understood this perspective perhaps the best. He got married way later in life. And according to historians, he, he had his close group of friends and that was about it. He didn't, he didn't branch out too much. And in a famous quote, uh, he, he said this, to feel it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure in keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and with little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or the coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And so could you have a heart that never is broken? You can. But it's an irredeemable heart that is beyond help. So to not feel is to not be like God. God feels deeply. He calls us to feel deeply. The man after God's own heart in the Old Testament is probably the most emotional person in the Bible. And I don't think it's because, I don't think being in the image of God is necessarily separate from him being emotional. I think the two go together. Because God is emotional, David was emotional. Jesus, the Son of God, is amazingly, is amazingly emotional, as we've already discussed. Uh, Peter, we, Paul wept, Peter wept, Jesus wept. Real men do cry. Perhaps to be unemotional is to be not like God, actually. Maybe if we were unemotional, we would be further from who he is. And so for those of us who struggle with thinking that emotions are the enemy and only out to destroy us, we have to keep in mind who we follow. Jesus didn't run from his emotions. He was not afraid of them. And they overwhelmed him at times. And they will overwhelm us at times. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's not necessarily a problem. Because for the person who rolls their eyes at... Okay, so testimony. For those of us who roll our eyes at the junior high girl who's crying about something ridiculous, perhaps that is just as crazy as a person who doesn't get emotional at the things of God. And the things that God brings into our lives, the unfeeling heart might be just as bad. So where does that leave us? And I will have to fly over this. The transformation, the emotional heart laid at the feet of Christ, uh, bringing our emotions to heal. In Romans chapter 12, if you have time, verse 2 is a super relevant one. To start with the concept of how do we deal with our emotion actually begins with the mind. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, that he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. This is the idea of a jello mold. Our minds, our hearts are too easily conformed to those around us. And what he's saying here is to first off, understand your heart is conformed to the world and how we're supposed to feel about things. And the first step to breaking the control of emotions in our lives in the negative way is to notice that there's a problem. And then he goes on to say, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The start place for emotions is the mind, not the heart. He says the renewing of the mind becomes the focus. He says when your mind begins to be transformed by the word of God, as that process starts to happen in you, then you can start to interact with your emotions from the mind of God. Because I love this reality. Let me see if the picture's up here. 
And Paul asked this question in 1 Corinthians, for who knows the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? He's quoting Isaiah. Who can know the mind of God? And then he answers his own question with, but we have the mind of Christ. Can you know the mind of God? Yes, if you know the mind of Christ. And I didn't necessarily mean this to be a plug for scripture memory, but as I was working through the sermon, I'm in the process of memorizing Romans 8 with a few people. And that passage is all about the sin nature and the spirit at war. I was like, man, what, a, what better relevant passage than that to talk about emotions? If we have the mind of Christ because we've been studying his life, his truth, his word, and allowing his spirit to move us, then we can start to tell our emotions, no, I know that's how you feel, but you must be brought to bear to me. Heal. So my parents are all about the dogs still. You know, they still love the dogs. And so, but they're much better at training them now, mostly because there's no kids to train anymore. So they have a lot more time. And so their dogs are pretty well trained. So when they go on walks, they say heel. And the dog is like right here, slightly behind them. And I love that picture. With the mind of Christ, we have the opportunity to tell our emotions, heal. I can't get rid of you. And I wouldn't even want to get rid of you. But I'm leading you. You're not leading me. And so the mind of Christ gives us the opportunity to be transformed in the way that we think. The second category begins with self-control. 2 Timothy 1.7, I'll read this passage. Uh, this is Paul near the end of his life. He's got weeks, months to live. He's talking to his young protege, who is a very scared person. Timothy seemingly was a fearful, timid man. And he's in leadership, and that sometimes is a very dangerous thing to have in leadership. And so in his, one of his last words that he writes, he writes to Timothy, and he says this to Timothy, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Self-discipline is amazingly unfeeling. And that's one of the ways that we bring our emotions under control. Now, I don't want to overstate this because if you're struggling with controlling your emotions to be told to have more self-discipline, it's just like adding another brick on your back and saying, I hope you can carry it. Because for most of us, self-discipline is a very weak muscle. But here's, the, here's what I think Paul's trying to say. Your self-discipline is not necessarily to be geared at curbing your emotion. Your self-discipline is to know who you are in Christ and know him. And I think that's the start and the end. If you focus your self-discipline on knowing Christ and who you are in Christ, the emotions will come under your control and all the other things will work out of that. I don't think he's telling Timothy, Timothy, look at all your fears and just remember, be self controlled and you'll solve it. He's saying you have the spirit of God in you to make this happen. You focus on the spirit, he will give you the self-control. And I, I love what he's trying to say there because without self-control, there's a, there's a proverb that says this in Proverbs 25, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. With no walls, anything comes and goes. With no walls, the emotions come out and they go right through me and they interact with the world straight, nothing to stop it. At the same time, there are times when our mind lies to us. And without the wall of self-control in our lives, your mind and its logic will get you to do things you never would do on your own. We need that self-control. And we need the spirit to work self-control in us because like any muscle, self-control gets stronger the more we use it. But again, I'm not saying you use self-control to bring all your emotions to bear. You use self-control to say, I'm going to pursue Christ in all that he has for me. So in conclusion, coming back to my last story, 
uh, the dog that saved me was named Bruiser. I think I was like between one and two. We were living in Colorado and I went out the back door as only a two-year-old can do. And I fell into an arroyo, which is a dried riverbed. But at this particular point, it wasn't dry. There was water rushing down this thing. And Bruiser, the great Dane that my parents had, followed me. And my parents were in the process of moving. So they had gotten rid of pretty much all their dogs, except for this one dumb uh, great, grand, uh, great Dane. He was a year old, which means he was still a puppy. And he just followed me out. And I fell into the arroyo. And I'm starting to we wash down the river. And he puts his legs on and I grab his legs and then he starts to bark and my parents come and pull me out of this thing and a dog saved my life. Pretty great, right? So you think I would love dogs? Still don't, but I'm appreciative to Bruiser at the very least because he saved my life. So emotions have the potential, I think, to save your life. I really do think that. They are not the enemy. How many times does the emotional gut feeling about something make your decision and you've thought about it, you've reasoned it through, and your gut's like, and you go with it, and it's right. Like, how many times have you avoided things that you shouldn't have been in because your gut told you something? Whatever that even means, right? So emotions are good. But we have a tendency to think emotions, we either see them as Lassie, follow them always because Timmy's in the well, right? And Lassie can always be trusted. Or we think of our emotions like Cujo, Stephen King's dog that's out to destroy you. And I think what the Bible's trying to make the case for is maybe your emotions are really more like Old Yeller. They're good, but they're infected, right? Old Yeller, he's got, what does Old Yeller have? Rabies. There we go. It's been a while. So he, he's sick. Old Yeller's sick, which means you can't fully trust Old Yeller. But at the same time, it's Old Yeller, right? You know, there's some trust you can have for him. And I think if we think of our hearts in this way, not as Lassie to be trusted fully, not as Cujo, something to be scared of, but as old yeller. Potential for good mixed with an infected disease that can't be fully trusted because we have the heart. We have the heart that we are told to guard. We have a heart that God has given us. We have a heart that's deceived. But then Paul would go on to say, but you have a heart that's renewed and being renewed in the spirit. And this is where we stand as Christians to allow Christ to reign us in to allow Christ to be the leash to our emotions. I don't want to be that guy with that dog, with my emotions just pulling me all over the place. That's tiring. But by focusing on who Christ is and who I am in him, there's the potential maybe that my emotions one day might not even have to be on a leash. How great that'll be. And one day when the future of heaven comes and we have the opportunity to interact with Christ face to face, then all those emotions, some of which we are scared to death of, will come to their completion. And then maybe we'll fully know why he made us the way that we are. And for those of us who struggle with being over-emotional, that is not a problem if it's underneath of the control of Christ. For those of us who are anti-emotional, that is not a problem as long as it's underneath of Christ. The challenge is to be thinking, what would Christ have me to do since he lives in me? And then to live out of that. Let's pray. Lord, to fly over something as huge and as complicated as emotions is beyond us for sure. But Lord, I do thank you that you gave them to us, that, uh, that they make life so much better. I can't imagine living life without them. Yet at the same time, we also know that they can make life so much worse. And so Lord, we pray that your spirit in us would give us a spirit of love, of power, and of self-control, that we would not have to live by our emotions, that we would not have to be afraid of our emotions that we would allow you to guide and direct us. We thank you that you sent your son 
uh, born into this world to feel every emotion that we feel, to know the power of them, and yet also by your spirit to live with those emotions underneath of his control. And Lord, we can't do that. Our hearts are too, too tricky. But Lord, you in us can. So help us to know you. Help us to pursue you. Help us to allow your truth to be in our minds, that it may guide our lives. And that as Paul said, we would know that your word is good and pleasing and perfect. That we would have that not just as a rational thought, but as an emotional reality. And we pray these things because of Christ. And it's in his most precious name we pray. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.